All right, um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is where we're going to be tonight. Revelation 4 and 5. If you missed a handout, if you did not get those, uh, there's some up here on this table. Also with a pencil, if you don't have a pencil. Uh, you'll notice there's a lot of blank space tonight because you can just jot down some notes as we walk through these uh, chapters. Um, but last week, we tried to wrap up um, the seven churches, and uh, we tried to do that in two weeks, and really each church deserves about a month for each one of them. Um, literally, it was a summary, and that's really kind of what we're doing with Revelation. And so if you got questions, I know it's a, it's a difficult book. I know there's a lot of questions. So I encourage you, because I, I know we can't get to them uh, usually on a Wednesday night, but write that question down. Uh, write it down. I'm here in a couple weeks. I'm actually going to create some time just on a Wednesday night to try to maybe summarize some things, but answer any questions that might have popped up along the way. So write a question down. Um, you know, you can give it to me afterwards or bring it during a week or on a Sunday, leave it or something, and I'll, I'll get to those, those questions. And so um, anyways, um, but last week we, we wrapped up kind of looking at that sevenfold formula that is present within each of the seven churches, um, and you can see those seven items there on your handouts. You have, number one, the recipient, so each letter is addressed to an audience, um, and in John's day, these were literal, real churches um, in modern-day Turkey, Southwest Asia, and um, so each one of them has a kind of a recipient. It's addressed to somebody, and then you, uh, each one has a sender, who is it from? And that sender is always from Jesus. And as we saw, um, each part or each sentence that's described from the sender is connected to the vision that John gets in Revelation chapter 1. Um, just Jesus and all his splendor and glory and, and everything. So they have the sender. And, uh, and then number three, they each one, the, the sender has this knowledge. Jesus says, I know I know this about you. I know this to be true, that kind of stuff. Um, and then each one has a verdict. What is that church doing good? What is that church not doing so well? Um, or do they only have good things or do they only have bad things? So there's that verdict from that knowledge and then uh, the command. What are they to do with that verdict? Uh, and then the result. What happens if they listen and obey that command? But then each one has this promise at the end. And the promise is, is basically the same. And it has this language in there to where it's to the one who conquers or to the one who is victorious. Um, at the end of each letter, it has this same thing. To the one who is victorious, I will give dot, 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 or I will do this, dot, dot, dot. But to the one who conquers and is victorious. Uh, but that is the sevenfold formula. Um, within the, the seven churches, and you'll notice John loves sevens. It, it's, it's just a common number as we see throughout this letter. Um, but overall, if I could summarize all these letters together, the, the heartbeat of the seven letters together, if I could summarize it, it, it would be this. Um, it's as though the Lord is telling them, listen, you will face tribulation, you will face tribulation. That's your first kind of blank there. You will face tribulation. And each one of these uh, churches in their respected cultures and their communities were facing some level of 
tribulation or persecution or opposition or hard times, difficult times. Um, again, in chapter 1, John's writing to his fellow, in, in essence, brothers and sisters in the tribulation. So they're fa- you will face tribulation. Jesus even said we would. Um, and then you will face tribulation, but you're also going to face temptations. You're going to face tribulation, but you're also going to face temptations. Um, there's going to be things that the culture is doing and leading you to do that you're going to be tempted to participate. For whatever reason, you're going to be tempted to participate. Um, so you're going to face tribulation. You're going to face temptations. You're also going to face trials. So you'll face tribulation, temptations, and trials of various kinds, all sorts of sufferings, whatever that, that could come at the hands of a government, that could come at the hands of a, a family member, that could come at the hands of a stranger, whatever it might be, you're going to face trials of all kinds, but, but the one who remains loyal and faithful to Jesus will be victorious, will be a conqueror, will be victorious. Um, the main word, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the main word that we read in these passages for the victorious ones or to those who conquer, um, the word is nikao, and it is the verb form of this word nike. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but this is where we get the word nike, and I wore some nikes tonight, all right? I wore some Nikes tonight just for this. Um, Nike, N-I-K-E, um, is the Greek goddess. This goes back to Greek mythology of victory, the Greek goddess of victory, both in regards to war, but also to friendly competition. Um, ultimately, she represented victory in anything and in everything, so she is often associated with Athena, who is the goddess of wisdom and war, and Zeus, who is kind of the king of the gods. And you can see in all these little cultures um, and these communities in which these churches live, they still participate in the worship of these gods. Um, And so here you have Nike as kind of the Greek goddess of victory and is associated with these false gods. Um, And due to her close relationship with these gods, she kind of became their divine charioteer. Um, and is often depicted as the one kind of leading the charge, leading their victory in the battle or something like that, right? She is, um, she's their Nike shoes, I guess you could say, right? Um, but anyways, I just thought that was very interesting. Um, and I don't think it's a, a coincidence because true victory, the true victory, because that's all a false victory, right? That's, that's you following the whims of the world, the, the whims of the culture, these false gods that the world presents as true gods when they're not. Um, our culture does the exact same thing. Follow these false gods that we make up for ourselves. True victory comes when you, you know, achieve whatever you fill in the blank. But true victory, what we learn throughout scripture, that true victory over tribulation in this world and over temptations and over trials comes not in ourselves, not from ourselves, but it comes in and from Jesus. He is the great one. Um, so it's kind of this paradox that we find in the gospel, right? As Jesus would often talk about, he who loses his life will save it. He who tries to save it will lose it, right? Those who lay down their lives, those who uh, deny self and pick up their cross and come follow him, 
um, who are one with him and united with him in death, so to speak, as Paul would kind of use that language. They are the ones that would actually experience true victory, not a false victory that the world presents to us and that Greek and Roman culture was presenting to their people, but true victory. And of course, that is folly to the world at the time and to our world today, right? Because Rome, and Paul talks about this, Rome sees our king slaughtered on a tree. But that's actually God's declaration of victory. And we'll see some of those verses a little later. Um, But where the world and Rome declared that's defeat, God declared that's actually victory. Not just over the physical world, but even over the spiritual world as well. And then ultimately over death itself. Um, so the, those who have true Nike, true Nike, they will be the, the true conquerors. Um, but it's as John shows us in 1 John. If you went back and, and read 1 John, um, it's a great, great letter. But in that letter, John says that the church, those born again, those who are in Christ, those who belong to Christ, those who, as he would say in John 1, who are born not of the flesh, but who are born of God's, um, they are the ones who have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. He says that in 1 John 4.4. 4. They are the ones who have overcome the evil one, 1 John 2.13 and 14. Uh, they are the ones that even have overcome their own hearts, which might condemn them at times, but God is greater, 1 John 3.3. 3. And they are the ones who have overcome the world, 1 John 5.4-5. through 5. You say, well, how is that possible? Because they are found in Jesus. And as, Jesus, as John would say, he who lives in you is greater than he who is in the world. And as Jesus would say, don't be troubled. You know, kind of take heart, you know, the fact that he has overcome the world. Uh, even though you're going to face all these things in this life. So, those with Jesus and in Jesus will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They are the victors. They are the conquerors. They will partake in the new creation that we'll see at the end of Revelation. They are the ones who will reign with Christ and live with Christ and walk with Christ um, and so these are promises, really, that you see throughout Jesus' teaching, throughout his apostles' teachings. Eternal life, reigning with him, light and goodness and joy and peace and so on. And again, these promises are reinforced in and through these letters to the seven churches. They're reinforced. Um, so in essence, remember, this is a pastoral kind of letters. No matter the cost, no matter the circumstances, Jesus is reminding his true followers Turn to me, remain loyal to me, no matter what you see in this life, no matter what you experience in this life, um, remain loyal to me. Um, And the rest of the book really reveals what will happen ultimately to the wicked, to the cursed, to those who don't turn to Jesus, who don't submit to Jesus, but then also to the holy ones, to the blessed, to those who are with and in Jesus, um, So along these lines, just listen to some of Paul's words here, uh, because this kind of taps on the church at Laodicea. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, we wait for his son from heaven. So right now we're in a waiting position. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us, From the coming wrath. So, again, in the New Testament, we have kind of this idea that we are saved now. We belong to him now. We belong to Christ. Uh, As Paul would say, you're not your own anymore. You're bought at a price. 
It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me now. But you're also this expectation that you will be saved from what is coming. You'll be saved from what is coming. He also mentions this in Romans 5, verse 1 through 11. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering, it produces perseverance. Perseverance, it produces character. And character, it produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Holy Spirit's not an it, he's a person, and he's God himself who now lives within us. Verse 6, he says, so you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us. It's Valentine's Day, let's think about love here, right? He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus, the Christ, died for us. So since we have now been justified by his blood, that's another image we'll see a lot in Revelation, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? In essence, that is coming through him. How will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, we have now received reconciliation. So again, it's, it's, we're in the ark of Christ now, but the rains haven't started falling yet, so to speak. And what you kind of see in Revelation is the rain beginning to fall. The wrath of God, in essence, kind of being peeled back, whatever's holding it back, kind of peeled back, it coming down. And the assurance that the Lord is giving to those who love him is that you have nothing to fear. You're in Christ. You belong to him. And this is the message that you've been hearing all throughout the New Testament, is that you are sealed, not by your works, but you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. So we're saved now, but we're also saved from the hour to come. And so the Lord is reminding of us of that. So we have no need for fear, right? Perfect love casts out all fear. Um, and so now, after this assurance, after this, these letters to the churches, now we move on to Revelation chapter 4. And from this point forward, everything gets really debatable. Um, I, for example, just the, we're going to see in this, this vision, this is technically the second vision we're about to enter into. And just the 24 elders that we see around the throne of God, there's like something like 13 different views on who they are. Um, you, can, you can get really down into the weeds on some of this stuff. Um, but there's debate on when, again, when, Revelation 4.1, and after, when it occurs, is it past, is it present, is it future, all that kind of stuff which we've looked at. What exactly is it all referring to? It, what do we take as literal? What do we take as imagery? What do we take as symbolism? All that kind of stuff. And who is where and who is what and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
But remember, overall, this letter, it's pastoral. Um, and what the Lord wants these churches specifically and us generally to hear, again, is that those in Christ who belong to Christ, um, that those who love Jesus have received him, really, we have nothing to fear. We have been born again. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, we no longer belong to darkness. Um, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We see that in Romans 8. Again, perfect love casts out fear, John says in 1 John 4. Um, and we anticipate and expect, regardless of what is to unfold in our current life or what is to unfold here in the coming days and years, we anticipate and expect to be welcomed into his presence as rightful, redeemed sons and daughters, justified by his blood, um, and not to be cast out of his presence. Right? Think of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is entering the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the will of the Father is to listen to his Son who he sent. And Jesus says, you know, to follow him and so on. But he says, those who... Um, he said, many people say, well, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, do we not cast out demons? And in your name, do we not do many wonderful works? He says, then I'll confess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me. But for those who do know him, he will welcome you in as a son or daughter to live happily ever after, if you will. So overall, these visions that we'll be walking through here from on out at Revelation 4 and beyond, um, in my take, some of them are referring to the past, some of them are referring to the present, and some of them are referring to the future. Um, but overall, while they are revelations, they are also reassurances about what is to happen to the righteous and what is to happen to the wicked, leading ultimately to the big reveal in Revelation 21, which I've talked about. Uh, Revelation 21.9, where the final vision is, where the angel says to John, let me now show you the bride of the Lamb. And he, in what the picture you get is her in all her glory and beauty and so on. Um, so despite all the views, I'm going to try to just kind of read through the text. Um, we're going to try to place some context around the text within the book itself, but also as it fits into the Old and New Testament, or really how those things um, point towards this book. Um, but, I, but I will say this, just a point of note before we read Revelation 4 and 5. Um, God has a way of using dramatic, vivid language to describe the supernatural or to paint the picture of the beyond, the beyond what is seen, or to declare how prophecy has or is or will be fulfilled. I'll give you an example. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We know the story. Um, you have the believers there. They're kind of praying and, and just kind of, you know, doing their thing. Uh, it's a big festival, a big time there in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just comes and descends upon them and like fire above them. This is massive imagery that goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back even well into the, to the beginning of it all. But the Holy Spirit comes and you know, in essence, appears kind of above these individuals, like flaming fires of tongue above them, right? And then he enters these individuals. He, in, he does something radically new that if he would have told his people long ago, they wouldn't have believed it, you know, as he would say himself. 
But this is something radically, radically new, that in and through Jesus, God has made a way for us to be born again. It's a language Jesus would use in John 3. To become sons and daughters of God, born of the Spirit, John would say it in John 1, not born of the flesh. And so now you, all, you see that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes like fire, and they're prophesying. It's a very special moment. It's a very unique moment in history, in the church history, and so on. And the Jews who are gathered there think they're drunk. They think they're crazy. Um, but then Peter stands up with the 11, and he raises his voice, and he addresses the crowd. This is in Acts 2, 14. He says, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. Who do you think they are, you know? Now, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. This is kind of imagery that takes you all the way back to the wilderness and Mount Sinai and so on. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in those days will be saved. And Peter's saying, that has been fulfilled among you today. Of course, they're thinking, come on, this, that, that's, not, that's not true. We're expecting all these big magical kind of moments. Yeah. So no, this is a big supernatural event moment in God's history and time. And so he's using very vivid, kind of dramatic language to show the significance of the event or the moment. He does this a lot. Um, but all of it, all of it, even the miracles that Jesus did, and John would make this point in his gospel, were ultimately to show that what he says in his word is true. Meaning, this is really ultimately all we need. The miracles and all that kind of stuff only affirms the book that we have before us. And that's kind of what God does um, in a very cool way. But let's read chapters 4 and 5 um, and then just break it down really quick. And so you'll see there I've got it broken out for you. Revelation 4, we see kind of what I say is the Trinity at the throne. Um, this is kind of the title I give it there. And then Revelation 5 is really focused on the Lamb of God. All right, so verse 1 of chapter 4, John writes this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. He said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. So at once, I was in the spirit. So now we're getting kind of a new vision here compared to what we got in chapters 1 through 3. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones 
And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stop saying or singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So you'll notice in these two chapters, five total hymns. We've just covered our second one. That one sung by the elders, the first one by those four beasts. Now we go into chapter 5. This is all part of the same vision. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So I wept and I wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Behold, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons or people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand they encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise and then i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power 
forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. All right, so let's quickly break this down. Um, But I'll give you an overall picture of the forest, so to speak, before we do. This, in a way, at least as you open up chapter 4, is a vision into the throne room, so to speak, of God. And what you see before you in this imagery is the holiness, the power, the authority, the glory of God. And you see all, person, all three persons of the Trinity present. Again, what you see all throughout Revelation, just like you see all throughout Scripture, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working in creation, working in redemption and salvation, and now working in new creation. And so how do I know? Well, first off, John sees the one sitting on the throne. This is the Father. But who's the one who calls to him first? Well, it's the same voice that he had first heard speaking to him like a trumpet. So you've got to go all the way back to chapter 1. And where we find on, in verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, you know, write on the scroll these things, and so on and so forth. And what we find out in that first vision is that the one speaking to him is Jesus. And so you have Jesus here leading John into the throne room of God. You have the Father there. And then again, what we have is the sevenfold spirit before the throne. The same spirit who is sent out into all the earth. This is language we see going back to John 14, 15, 16. Remember in John's gospel, Jesus, before he left, talks about sending us a helper, right? A helper who would go out into the world and bring conviction and so on. Um, So what do you see? You see the Trinity at work there, but you also see kind of a heavenly council. You see a heavenly council. um, You see the elders. You see these four creatures, um, which, by the way, are directly tied to Isaiah and Ezekiel. We'll look at it in a moment. Um, In a way, they represent angels. We'll look at that in a moment. But what you see is this heavenly council, these 24 elders, these angels, and then a whole multitude of angels, countless angels praising God in and through worship. Again, there's five hymns that are listed here. Um, two in chapter four, three in chapter five. Um, and it's all very Trinity driven. The Father's there, the Son, you see them worshiping the Father, but then you see them bowing down at the slain Lamb, who we know that to be Jesus. Um, this is God in all his glory and power and so on. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit is there as well. But let's just kind of break this down a little bit and kind of walk through this. So verse, chapter 4, verse 1, and uh, this is what John writes. He says, after this. So again, this is the, the first vision began in chapter 1, there when John was in the Spirit, as we read chapter 1, verse 10, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 3. That's all part of that first vision that he gets which is really Jesus giving him the words to say to the, letter, or to the churches through these letters. Um, but this is where the debate really kicks in. After this, after what? Um, after the vision? Some would say after the, the churches. You know, if, if you hold to the rapture, you're like, is this after the churches have left this world, this reality, and gone to the spiritual world? Like, what are we talking about here? After 
what. Um, basically holding to, if you're going to hold to the scripture, um, to its integrity, the way John is writing this, it really would be like after this previous vision, this is what happened next. So in the way that John would be writing, is, I got this vision, and then after that vision, this is what happened. It's really always saying by that this. Now, Jesus is going to say another this in just a moment, but as far as John's this, it really just holds to the, really just carries that idea of after that first vision, this is what happened next. Um, and so then he says, I looked and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. As it was like a curtain was opened back and I was able to go from the physical world into the heavenly spiritual world. This is a weird kind of moment. Um, this is like transfiguration weird, where the, the curtain is being peeled back a little bit. This is like Balaam's donkey kind of weird, where Balaam sees the, the messenger of God there on the road and starts acting weird, if you remember that scene. Um, this, is, this is some weird stuff. And so this door is opened up. He's in the spirit, and now he is in the presence of God. Just don't miss that. He is now in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, the creator of all things, who was, who is, who is to come. Um, and again, he says, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Again, that goes back to chapter 1, verse 10. That voice belongs to Jesus. And Jesus says, come up here, and I'm going to show you what must take place after this. Now, that, this is kind of a little different kind of this. Um, this is where um, you could say that what Jesus is alluding to here is after these events that we've talked about with the seven churches, now let's talk about what's about to happen. Um, and this goes back to... Um, Chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus tells John, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, but also what will take place later. And that seems to be now we're getting to the what takes place later moment. Um, now, we can debate how much later we're talking about, right? Again, because going back all the way to chapter 1, verse 1, we find out these are the things that soon must take place. Well, this was 2,000 years ago. What are we talking about soon, you know? Um, but either way, this seems to be now we are transitioning to some things that are to happen later. Uh, and so at once, verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. Very similar language. It's kind of like another note to say, hey, we're in a new vision now. You got that first vision, which was Jesus starting in chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 3. Um, and then we move on, and what's interesting is that, um, well, we'll move on. We don't have time for that. So, anyway, so he says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Again, this is the Father, and this is very similar imagery to Daniel chapter 7. Really reading through the, the prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, these would be good prophets to go back and just kind of refresh your mind on, especially Ezekiel and Daniel. 
But this is a very similar imagery that, that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. But we see this throne, and we see the Father there. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. The appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Where my translation said, uh, where was it here? What do you say? Ruby. Yes, that's what my translation had. But it's this Carnelian. And so Jasper is just a stone, kind of like a diamond. Um, ordinarily, the Jasper is a stone of various wavy colors. One source says somewhat transparent. Um, but it kind of represents brightness. It represents holiness. Um, or you could call the, the holiness or the glory of God's. Um, now, what's really, really cool about this, connecting that word Jasper to Revelation 21.11. Flip over to Revelation 21.11 real quick. This is a really cool connection. So again, the very last vision John gets is of the bride of the Lamb coming down kind of as this new Jerusalem. Paul talks about this in some of his letters, the free Jerusalem. Um, So in all her glory and all her splendor, um, remember what John says in 1 John, I don't know what we'll be like, but I know we'll be like him when he comes. We'll, we'll share in what we call glorification. It's just a fancy word that says we'll share in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you too, the church, will be raised imperishable with immortality and glory, just like Jesus was. That's the hope. He's the first fruit from the dead and so on. So the angel in this last vision says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit. Again, there's that trigger point there. That's a new vision. To a mountain great and high, this is Revelation 21.10. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And it's brilliant. So we're talking about the new Jerusalem, which the angel says is the bride of the Lamb, who is the church. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel like Jasper. And there's that imagery again of Jasper. So, again, don't, don't miss this because John wants you to pick up on something, or at least the Lord does. I think John knows it too. Because if you go all the way back to John chapter 1, all the way back to John chapter 1, his big introduction to his gospel, he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Remember, Moses wanted to see the glory of God's. If you look upon Jesus, you've seen the glory of God. As Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and of truth. And those who received him, he gave the right to be what? Born again, he says earlier on. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God's. Image bearers of Jesus, in essence. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but who are born of God. So you as his children, we don't know what you'll look like, but we know on that revealing day, as we see in Revelation 21, you in a way will look like him in all his splendor and glory. That's, that's imagery that John wants you to, to see and hold on to. Um, so now you're seeing the glory of God here in Revelation 4 at the throne, um, that jasper. 
But also you see that uh, ruby or that carnelian. And some people think this represents kind of the fiery red of like anger almost that comes with his justice, kind of executing his fiery wrath, right? Remember Peter foresees kind of fire coming in the same way the flood came in, right? God made the promise that he wouldn't flood the earth like he did, but he didn't say he wouldn't bring fire on the earth. Um, he would bring judgment on wickedness and so on and so forth. Um, so some think it's referring to that or some thinks it's referring to kind of the blood that purifies us and brings us purity, especially connecting with the image in chapter 5. Either way, they have this imagery. It's, it's, it's purity. It's his holiness. It's his glory. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And this is not like a half circle that we see with the rainbow. It's a full encircled thing. It's kind of like completeness or wholeness or beauty, brilliance. Some people think it represents power and his, or his promises and potentially, again, his judgment. Because the rainbow, or literally the bow, was put in the kind of like a, a, a kind of a warrior's bow is the original language there with the rainbow, was put in the sky as kind of a reminder of his judgment on sin, but also his mercy and grace offered to those who love him, or you might say who have the the blood of Christ upon them. So anyways, he sees this vision here. It's this beautiful imagery. And then around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Um, I told you there's like 13 different views on who these elders are. Um, some would say it's the 12 apostles um, and kind of like the, the, maybe the 12 patriarchs of the tribes of Israel kind of together, or it's a combo of apostles and prophets and so on. Um, some people think they actually represent just the church in general. Um, this number 12 is a very unique kind of special number for God and kind of represents kind of governance um, or oversight. And there is clearly this imagery and language that we will reign with him. You have that at the end of Revelation that we will reign with him. Um, and so it's, you know, and they talk about the white garments just being purity and these golden crowns representing just kind of Victory, again, kind of that language of the conquerors, the victors. Um, but, but going along with that idea, because even if it's apostles or the church, think, for example, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, um, listen to what Paul says. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. So he's addressing believers here. He says, he's made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions or trespasses. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So again, it's, it's, we have been born again. It's no longer we who lives, it's Christ who lives in us. Paul would say we are no longer our own, as Paul would also argue elsewhere, the old has gone, the new has come. You're a new creation 
in Christ. And so even as Jesus talked about this in giving of the Holy Spirit, he says, just as I am the Father, the Father is in me, so you also will be in me and I in you. It's incredible language that he's using. And then Paul is just reinforcing that, that the fact that if you're in Christ, you're literally seated with him in victory right now. This is why you have nothing to fear, even death itself, right? Because as, as Jesus told Mary Martha, though you believe in, or those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. They'll never die. You stand in victory. Even though you await glorification, right now you are seated with him. And so some people think this is even referring to the church in this present moment as seated with him, or it's a foreshadow of what the church will be in his presence in all their glory. Or others think it's just the apostles and so on. Either way, it's this council is there before God's. And from the throne, verse 5, is coming flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Um, again, this is imagery that you see going all the way back to the wilderness. It's kind of that, that thunder and lightning in the presence of God here. Um, and then burning before the throne were, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God. We see this. Already in chapter 1, you see that Trinity presentation where uh, John says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirits before his throne. So that's chapter 1, verse 4. Now John has seen that before him. He's seen a visual of that now. But then he says in verse 5 of chapter 1, and from Jesus Christ. So again, you see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit there, and now he's seeing it before the throne. He's seeing the Holy Spirit, the Son is there, the Father is there. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are these four living creatures. Um, again, you can go back and read like Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and 10. Uh, many people believe these to be the cherubim and seraphim. It's kind of two different categories of angels we don't have time to go into. Um, but basically, they say these are basically linked to angels before the throne room of God. But these are very kind of higher up kind of angels, if you will. The, the description of the animals and the, the, the figures are very supreme versions of angels, at least. Um, and so they're all there, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And that's the first of the five hymns. Um, and so they're just worshiping their glory, you know, they're giving him glory and praise. Um, it's just a scene of worship. It's almost a scene of like a church service. Worshiping Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God himself for all that he has done, for all that he is doing, for all that he will do. Um, and the entire spiritual realm is participating, right? You have this heavenly council you have these, uh, and then you have this myriad of angels. This whole spiritual reality, just worshiping him and praising him and so on. Um, and then we dive into the vision of the Lamb of God, which we're going to pick up next week. We're going to pick up on that next week. Uh, but are there any questions or comments from what we talked about tonight before we close? There's a lot there. 
So again, as you're coming across questions, write them down, get those in. I'll try to answer those. Um, but we will pick up on reading through um, about the, the lamb here in chapter 5 and continue on next week. But let me close this in prayer, and then after that we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. We love you. Father, help us just to step back and continually consider who you are, your glory, your power, your authority, and the fact that in and through Jesus, his life, ultimately his death and resurrection, you have victory over every power, over every authority, seen or unseen, even over death itself. And we thank you that in Christ we belong to you. That we have been born again. That we are a new creation in Christ. And while we see dimly right now, we thank you for what we look forward to in the future of sharing in the glory of Christ and being with you forever and ever in a new, in a new world that you have in store for those who love you. But Father, we pray for those who have rejected you. We pray for repentance and salvation. We pray that they would turn to you and have a new life in you. But continue to give us wisdom and understanding as we walk through your word. To continue to use it to assure us, to remind us, but also to convict and change us to be more like your son Jesus in every way. To your glory and praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, thank you all. We'll see you all later.